Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to make my life, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. My text for today is Jonah, actually chapters 1 and 2, but I know that time will prevent us from really getting into chapter 2, so I asked Tess to read it. Uh, of all the minor prophets, Jonah is the weirdest, isn't it? For a start, Jonah speaks precisely five words as a prophet in this book, so we're not actually reading the prophetic words of Jonah. We're reading a prophetic story about Jonah, and the point of this story is to show us two truths, simple but profound truths about God, uh, one in each half of the book. Uh, God is the creator, chapters 1 and 2. God is compassionate, chapters 3 and 4. Maybe if I get a sermon next year, we can do 3 and 4 and think about God's compassion. But uh, today I want us to think about what does it mean for each one of us personally that God is creator? Do you believe that about God, that he is the creator? Does it matter to you? Does it make a difference to your life? That's a question we're going to be thinking about. Let's uh, pray for God's help as we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you'd help us to understand what you are in this text, what you are to us as our creator, and to live lives that reflect that great truth to your honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Well, instead of three points, I have four questions that I want us to ask on the way, that we, uh, on the way through the story. So the questions are, you, you need to remember them. Are you ready? What do you believe? What do you fear? What do you trust? What do you long for? Okay, what do you believe? What do you fear? What do you trust? What do you long for? Chapter 1, verse 1. The story opens with a word of command. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to run away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for Tarshish. After paying the fare, he went down into the ship to sail with her for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. 
Now, the Lord is the protagonist of this story, the main character. He acts. Everyone else, especially Jonah, reacts. This is not really a story about Jonah. Uh, This is a series of events engineered by God for our benefit. So God gets the ball rolling with those three simple instructions. Get up, go, preach. And he gives us a motive. He gives us a little glimpse into his inner life. Nineveh's wickedness basically stinks in God's nostrils. Uh, The other thing this speech reveals about God is his location. He's way up there in the high heavens looking down upon the city. That's God. What about Jonah? Uh, Right at the start, there's quite a significant omission because Jonah doesn't actually say anything. We get no hint of his thoughts, his feelings, his motives. Uh, For the time being, he's a flat, two-dimensional character. We only see the outside of him. So we've got to settle with the next question, which is, what does he do? Well, he gets up, as instructed, but only to run away. Now, apologies to first year, I don't have a map here, but the geography's not (laughs) that difficult, right? Instead of going that way, he went that way. (laughs) About as far as you can go. However, there is a more subtle flight going on as well. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship, pays a fare, and then goes further down into the boat. There's actually a vertical flight from God where he dwells in highest heaven. And this vertical flight is going to play a significant part in the story. Obviously, Jonah is running away from God's plan, right? But actually, his main goal is to escape from God's presence, What was he thinking? Did he imagine this was even possible? Or or was it just a sort of a mute act of resistance? We're not actually told. In the story, Jonah's actions are just really a foil that allows God to demonstrate his character. So as verse opens, we see that God already anticipated Jonah's reaction. The Lord had thrown, literally, a great wind at the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. This is actually the first in a series of contrasts between Jonah on the one hand and the pagan sailors on the other. And the sailors' response exactly matches the circumstances. Uh, They fear, they pray, and they act. What can we say about Jonah? I guess we can say at least he's consistent. He simply finishes his downward journey down into the hold where he wordlessly shuts out the storm just as effectively as he shut out God's speech at the start of the text. This would be a good time uh, in most Old Testament stories for God to appear to Jonah in a dream and chastise him. But God has bigger plans and he sends in the captain. Verse 6. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we won't perish. Now, let's be clear. The captain is not commenting on Jonah's excellent sleeping abilities. Uh, It's on his attitude, isn't it? Like, what's with you, Jonah? And he's basically repeating what God told Jonah at the start. But I want us to just pause and think about these pagan sailors. We mustn't mistake Uh, make the mistake of confusing them with Israelites. Their worldview was entirely different. 
You see, the captain and his crew, they lived in a world controlled by hordes of petty, vengeful deities whose power was real but limited and they needed constant placating. You know, no wonder these sailors were scared. Their decision to cast lots in this story, I think, is just an effort to tip the odds in the favour of correctly guessing which one of these myriad gods they had accidentally offended and which unwitting actions might have been to blame and what this angry deity might perhaps want in return. It was a terrifying world. And so when the lot falls to Jonah, they pelt him with all of these questions. And the answer they get is, Actually, I think terrifying beyond their wildest expectations. Verse 9. Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That is the key verse of the first two chapters of Jonah, the key verse of the flight from God story. Who is Jonah's God? He is the Lord, God of the heavens. Well, bingo, here's a God of the heavens. He's got power over the storm, so clearly this is relevant. But Jonah's not done because this Lord also has power over the waves, like the sailor's God, Yarm. But unlike that God, this Lord actually made the sea, and not only the sea, but the dry land as well. In other words, Jonah's God is not one of these gods. He's not a local deity. His power is universal and he doesn't just merely inhabit these created spaces. He made them, which means that his power is eternal as well. We're going to think about the sailors' reactions in a second, but first of all, what's going on with Jonah? The very first words he says in the entire story and they expose him as basically a complete idiot. Don't they? How can he believe this about God while at the same time working with every fibre of his being to escape from God's presence? What are we supposed to do with the absurdity of the man? Maybe we could start a meme page. (laughs) Jonah is weird. I said this at the beginning. First, I think it's important to remember again, we're not actually the first audience, the original audience of this book. Uh, This pretty damning satire of an Israelite prophet was actually written for Israelites' readers and in its context among the 12 minor prophets, the message I think is pretty clear. Saying, "You, you Israelite readers, you think this prophet who says one thing about God but acts like he doesn't believe a word of it? You think he's an idiot? Well, what about you? A few pages back, Amos put it this way, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Or brass. Thank you. Like Jonah, God's people were saying all the right things about God on the one hand, but living as though they didn't believe a word of it. Well, this brings me to the first of my four questions about God as creator. What do you believe? Do you believe that God is the creator? Really? That he is everywhere? That he governs everything? 
that there can be no escape from his presence or knowledge or power? How deeply is that belief ingrained into you? How easy do you find it to forget? Are you like the sailors? When you look around, what do you see first? Do you see the invisible hand of God before you see the visible effects of his power? When something happens to you or when something happens in the world, do you wonder at the mysterious purposes of God before you figure out how it's playing out on the ground? Here's the, the diagnostic question. If you really did, then wouldn't you pray before you took action? That'd be logical, wouldn't it? So, that's question one, inspired by Jonah's first speech. Do you believe in your actions? Do you show by your prayers that God is the creator? Question two comes out of the sailor's response, and it's about fear. Verse 10. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. Now the pagan sailors, the narrator uh, tells us at this point of the story, they, they already knew Jonah was fleeing from God's presence, but they, I think they assumed a God whose presence was localized and therefore a God who is technically fleeable from, if I can put it that way. Now that they've learned that they're dealing with the eternal creator of the universe, they ironically respond as Jonah and Israel should have responded but did not, with extreme fear. They ask Jonah for advice and there's not much time. Three times in verses 11 to 13, the wildness of the storm is, is mentioned. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down? Pick me up and throw me into the sea. It will become calm. I know this my fault that this great storm has come upon you. They did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. We're supposed to feel this growing panic and suspense of certain death getting closer and closer. And Jonah's response is based, I think, on his recognition of God's justice. He uses that rare word that I alluded to at the beginning of hurling or throwing God, in verse 4, threw a storm at the sea. The sailors have thrown out the cargo, but actually, Jonah says, the storm was thrown at me, not you, and you've got to throw me back. The sailors were already afraid. They were praying to every god they could possibly think of, hopefully that they might, by some lucky chance, hit the right one. But now they're not just afraid, they're terrified. And in verse 14, they start praying to the Creator. They beg his forgiveness, they throw Jonah over the side, and the raging sea falls silent. What's their reaction? Um, a whole new level of fear. Verse 16. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows for him. I almost feel sorry for these guys. They had very simple fears at the beginning of this story. They had a fear of the storm, they had a terror of dying, but now their world has been turned upside down. They realize that there is this invisible power greater than any power they had ever conceived of, and it's interested in them, in what they do, in what happens to them. They can't see him, but Jonah's God matters more than all the things they can see. 
the waves, the boat, the sky, because everything that happens, storms and sunsets and births and deaths, food, love, breathing, everything happens because this God decides that it will. If Jonah's shallow faith was a slap to the face of the Israelite readers of this book, then how much more the fact that the pagans are held up as the model of faith in this story. Remember what Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. There is no worse or more ominous tragedy than when God's faithful people stop fearing him. If Jonah's response challenges us to examine what we believe, I think the sailors are in this story to make us examine what we fear. Nothing can be hidden from our creator. Nothing is beyond his power. His eyes are intently fixed on you and on me. Does that make you nervous? Or do you manage to conveniently forget it when you feel the pressure to win approval from others or to harbour secret sins? Do you feel safe doing that? Or does your fear of your creator keep you from destructive behaviours? What do you believe? What do you fear? Thirdly, whom do you trust? Uh, We only have time for a quick glance at the next chapter, but as we read uh, and listened when Chase read to Jonah's prayer, the first thing I want to point out is that his journey away from God was not over in the boat. Jonah had stopped running, but God had other ideas. Look at verse 3. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. God decided that Jonah was going to be sent further down that he would be hurled from his life into the jaws of death. He made sure that Jonah's flight down did not stop in the hold of the ship, but continued down, down to the depths of the underworld, the place of the dead, the dark country where God is not. As verse 2 puts it, the depth of the grave. God's teaching Jonah a lesson here, and the lesson is what escaping from God's presence actually looks like. In the absence of the creator of everything, there is only nothing. In the absence of God's life, there is only death. And yet, this is why I love this chapter so much, Jonah is doing something that I think is technically impossible in chapter 2. He is praying while in the realm of the dead. Psalm 115 says, The dead do not praise the Lord. But Jonah keeps speaking because of the miracle of the fish. God has preserved Jonah and his prayers even as the evil of death has overwhelmed him. And Jonah's prayers are prayers of confidence and trust, even of praise. In, In the blackest pit of hell, Jonah prays, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. Where does trust like that come from? 
This is a new Jonah, almost an unrecognizable Jonah in this chapter. Ironically, a Jonah who has all his finest moments inside a fish. <laughs> but it's not actually Jonah's trust I want us to think about. I want us to think about Jesus' trust. Remember what Jesus said about Jonah? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Really interesting that Jesus looked back to Jonah at that point in his life. I don't think it was just the prophecy of three days and nights that Jesus went back for to Jonah uh, as an image of his approaching death. Jesus evidently trusted that his father would not permit him to go mute into the embrace of death. As terrible as the prospect was of being forsaken by his father, of sinking into the depths of God's absence, Jesus trusted that his praying voice would be preserved, would be enabled, would be finally heard. And this was a trust that allowed Jesus to walk with his eyes open to death. Now you may believe in your creator's presence and power. You may have a healthy fear of his judgment. But none of that is going to shield you from trouble, from pain, from loss, from death. So the question is, do you trust with Jesus that your creator is for you even when he seems not to be with you, that he hears you in the darkness, that you are not forgotten. And if you do trust in Christ in that way, you will show that trust by obeying Jesus when he commands you to take up your cross, to follow him, to put his service above every other joy. This is the hard one, I reckon, Trust. You know, believing in his power, no problem. Fearing in his judgment, naturally. Trusting in his goodness in the midst of death. It's another matter, isn't it? Well, in the second half of Jonah's prayer, we see his upward journey finally begin. In verse 4, he's longing to enjoy the presence of God once more. But in verses 5 and 6, he's still at the roots of the underworld. He's outside of any time frame. He's lost. Until at last in verse 6, we get a, a narrative moment. But you brought my life up from the pit. God reaches into death. He grabs hold of Jonah's life. Time begins again, and movement and joy and in just this way, God reached into death and pulled his son from the grave, like a midwife, bringing into the world a life it had never known before. What I mean is um, that the new life that God draws from death is not like the old life, the, the one that died. We get just a hint of this, I think, in Jonah's case, in verse 9, where we see the resurrected Jonah filled with these completely uncharacteristic shouts of praise. But I don't want to get carried away. Right? The pagan sailors were sacrificing and making vows back at the end of chapter 1. Jonah, Jonah's only just catching up to them. And as the final chapter of Jonah will show us, in one sense, nothing's really changed in him at all. But this 
first half of Jonah's story ultimately points us to the mystery of resurrection, which is that the new life will not be like the old. Each one of us who has put our trust in Christ is like Jonah and that fish. We're being held by God and drawn on an upward journey. As of yet, Christ is the only one who has broken the surface and completed that journey to life, and our guarantee of recreation comes by clinging to him. As Hebrews puts it, we have this hope set before us as an anchor for the soul, a nice nautical metaphor. So my first, second, third, fourth, and closing question for you today is what do you long for? Of course, all of us hope for lots of things, don't we? And they're good things to hope for. Health, happiness, loving family and friends, fruitful ministry, a life spent well. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things and working for them. That's not my question. My question is, what do you long for? What is your deepest wish for yourself? Do you long like Paul longs in Philippians? Remember those famous words, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Jonah's downward and upward journey is Christ's journey, and in Christ, it's our journey. So my prayer for you is that you will travel well, that you will believe in the Creator's power and presence, that you will rightly fear the Creator's judgment, that you will trust the Creator's goodness and listening ear and that you will finally long for the new creation.